Oh man, here we are. John chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John 17. We'll be in verses 20 uh, through 26 this morning. Verses 20 through 26. So over the last couple of weeks, over the last several months, with some breaks here and there, you know, that people forget to mention, but anyway, with <laughs> over the last couple of years, really, we've been walking through the book of John. And, uh, and it's been... It's been fascinating. Uh, it's getting ready to come to a head. These will be the final words of Christ uh, before His arrest that we're about to read here in just a moment. And so this is the end of His high priestly prayer, as it's called. Jesus has been praying some phenomenal things. Uh, and initially we saw Him praying for His own glory, that it would be seen through the cross as He prepares to go to the cross, that it would be seen in heaven as He prepares to be restored back to uh, that place and relationship he had before the world began, he says. And then we see that he prays that his glory would be seen in the church. And it was from that in the church part that Jesus uh, really launches into uh, the depths of his prayer. Well, I don't even say the depths. They're all depths. I mean, it's been great. But he launches into the bulk of his prayer. He, he's praying for disciples. And in, in the verses we looked at last week, we just looked at the heart of Christ toward believers. What we saw there were really two things that he kind of reveals his heart in. Um, he, 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 he wants us to see his heart for believers. Um, and then what we see this week is that um, he's going to kind of continue that. So one of the things we saw last week is that he prays for believers, that there's special intercession uh, for believers. Uh, that he says, I'm not praying for those who are in the world, I'm praying for those whom you have given me. So he's praying for um, God's people, uh, the ones that have been given to Christ. Uh, and so in that, he, he prays for a couple of things, and then today we're going to see him pray for uh, some more stuff. Um, so we'll get into that. Specifically, what he prays for in this text today is our witness in the world. He, he begins to kind of cast some vision really for what the church is going to look like, how it's going to be effective in a world that is hostile towards Him, in a world that's about to come and crucify Him. Uh, we begin to see He prays for uh, unity within the church. He prays for His own glory to be seen within the church. He prays for uh, the love of the Father to be known among God's people or among His people. And then He prays for us to understand the hope for which we have uh, ahead of us. And so as we open this text, our goal is always, as John writes in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, somewhere in there, he says, I've written these things so that you may see that Jesus is the Messiah, that He's the Son of God, and having seen Him, or having believed Him, uh, find life in His name. And so that's why we're opening the text today. We want to see Christ, we want to see His heart, we want to believe what we see, so we're going to ask the Lord to make it fruitful here in just a second. Uh, so that we can find life in His name. Amen? Amen. Let's, uh, let me read the text and then, then I'll pray. Let's do that. I like that idea. You like that idea? All right, cool. All right, so John seventeen twenty, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they all that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Wow. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me wherever, uh, where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask now that you would open our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears to see Christ today. Lord, would you help us to believe in all that we see here in your, in your text, in, the, in, in these scriptures, in your word. Help us to receive these things as hearts with good soil. Father, that these words would be planted deep into our hearts and they would bear fruit in our lives and all that we say and do. Uh, for your glory and for the good of those around us. God, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, I want to start just kind of by confessing something to you, okay? Oftentimes, I, I, when I think about the Great Commission, I get overwhelmed. All right, so the Great Commission says, go and make disciples. This is Jesus after his resurrection. He appears before the disciples. Sorry, I don't want to assume that we all understand where, where this happens at in the Bible. So Jesus, after his resurrection, he appears to his disciples. And before he's going to ascend into heaven, this is what he says. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now that is the mission of the church. This is the mission of God in the world today happening through the church. This is why we've crafted even our mission statement as you'll see it on the front of your worship guide. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We believe wholeheartedly that we are called to make disciples. But when I think about the Great Commission, I get a bit overwhelmed. As I think about those words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, I become a bit like Moses. I begin to find a lot of reasons why, God, you can't use me to do that. Surely you're talking to other people, but not me. There's no way I'm worthy of this. There's no way I'm able to do this. Surely that's meant for someone else. Maybe you kind of feel the same when you think about those words. The problem is, that's the way I feel about what I think he's asking. It's not really what he's asking. The truth is, what happens in me is I begin to treat the Great Commission as an individual command, a command straight to me. And in some ways, it is individual, but in large, largely, it's a command to all disciples. It's a command to the church, right? The church global, big C church, universal church. And when I do that, what happens is I begin to reduce the privilege I begin to reduce the specific calling of the Great Commission to all believers. I reduce it down simply to a, a job which is to be done. It's just simply a job that we all must be about doing. We must start doing in some way. And I think that happens because I have a small view of Jesus' words at the end of the Great Commission where He says, and surely I am with you always 
to the very end of the age. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So it's not individualistic. It's with Christ as someone who is in Christ, a part of a church, right? A part of a group of believers, a large group of believers. So I'm guilty then when that happens of doubting whether or not God is truly with me. That Jesus is truly with us even in that sense. My heart begins to drift. And I can read the words. I can even understand what the words mean. It's not like I don't have understanding of what they mean, but I find it difficult not to drift into uh, this me-centered approach to disciple-making. This me-centered approach to reaching the world, if you will. But when I stop and I think about the words of Jesus there at the end of that, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's His promise to be with us. His promise to not leave us. His promise to, to love us even to the end of the age as John chapter 13 begins. When I think about those things, my heart finds strength. I find a desire to go and do the things that God's called us to do, to to be a part of this. The words of Christ in those moments when I take them at what He's saying and I trust that that's a promise which He will fulfill. He's given me no reason to not trust Him. And when I begin to believe those things, it's life-giving for me. It, it, It causes joy to well up in my heart. It causes some compassion for the world. Right For people who don't know the Lord. As Jesus looks out on the people, it says that He had compassion for them because they were people without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. And so that we, we begin to have that same heart as we look into the world and we see people who are wandering and lost. Sheep without a shepherd. Rather than someone who ought to be dealt with in some way. So... If you're anxious about like fulfilling the Great Commission, you're anxious about what God calls you to do as a Christian, right? And so when I say this, disciple-making is not for uh, pastors and Sunday school teachers alone. Disciple-making is for all disciples. It's for all believers that we be a part of this. Paul words it this way as he talks about the new life which you've received. The old man passes away. All things become new. And it says that God grants you the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, you can read about it down there uh, after verse 21. It talks about the, the ministry of reconciliation that you've received. Well, what's the ministry of reconciliation? It's to proclaim that there is now peace with God for mankind once again because of Jesus Christ. He's made reconciliation possible. So we get to share the good news of Christ. That God made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? Amen. So we get to be a part of that. But, but here's what I think. When, when you, if you find that difficult, like you, you think about those things and it kind of causes some anxiety to come over you, as it does me at times, I think you'll find this part of Jesus' prayer, uh, His prayer particularly encouraging. Because here what we see is that the Great Commission isn't your job to do but it's God's promise to fulfill. The Great Commission isn't your job to do, it's God's promise to fulfill. Alright, so last week we saw Jesus' heart toward believers. We saw that He cherishes you in spite of your inabilities. Praise God! He, he, he loves us in spite of our unloveliness. Amen? 
Romans 5.8, we'll mention it again later, but Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's not waiting on some future version of you to love. He loves you. Amen? Amen. We saw also that He helps us then with special intercession. We, we see in Hebrews that Jesus lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of God. You see it in Romans chapter 8 also, that Jesus is before or at the right hand of God in heaven, interceding for us. And that His intercession is good enough to save people. <laughs> Amen? So we talked about who else would you rather have praying for you other than the Son of God? No one, right? And so in our text today, Jesus is continuing this special intercession He's continuing to pray. He prays for the future of the church. Again, Big C Church, we're a part of that as a local church. We're part of the mission of the big church, right? But Big C Church is the church universal, the church throughout the world, throughout history, throughout uh, the future. It's, it's the people that God has called to Himself, has saved, and has sent on mission into the world. So, what we see, though, is that he's praying for the future of the church. Particularly, he's praying for the witness of the church in the world. Now, it's important to remember, I mentioned it a moment ago, but we have to remember that what we see Christ praying for here is a glimpse into how he still prays for us today. How he is continually praying for us even now. And so if you're taking notes, we'll just start this way. Jesus prays for the church to be a witness to the world as He is doing some things in us. All right, One is He strengthens us in unity. He strengthens us in unity. I'll, I'll look again at verses 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples that are there with Him, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word. Y'all say, if you're a believer, say, that's Me. All right, there's six of you in here. Great. Say, that's me. I expect the altar to be full this morning. Here we go. All right. Everybody say, that's me. So he's praying for you, right? This is a prayer for you. He goes on to say that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's praying for a strength in unity. So let's just kind of dissect what we're reading here for a moment and then we'll move on. That those who will teaches us that every Christian, past the, the words, those who will, teaches us that every Christian, past, present, future, is included in this prayer. Jesus is praying for all believers. Whether, whether you like other Christians or not, whether you think other Christians are, are right or not, or good or not, or do things the way that you love or not, does not make this prayer any less effective. What it could do is make you less effective as a disciple. Your unity matters for your witness. The way that you view other Christians matters for your witness. Alright, and so... Um, Jesus is praying here for the unity of of the church. He's not praying for its uniformity. All right, so, so let, me, let me talk about it. Too often what we're after is uniformity. We want everyone, we demand as Christians that every other believer look like us, talk like us, and act like us. That's not what Jesus is praying for. He's not praying for uniformity. He's praying for unity in the church. 
So what we see is that God is praised and the world takes notice when Christians demonstrate a Spirit-given unity. In other words, the Holy Spirit that's in us is unified to other believers because the same Spirit is in them. And that unity must be centered around core beliefs of Christianity. He talks about those who will come to believe or those who will believe according to their word. Well, it's not just the disciples' word. Who did they get the word from? Jesus. Who did Jesus get the word from? He says, I gave them the word which you gave me. Talking to the Father in this prayer. So the word that he's talking about is God's word. All right, so that's an important distinction. We're not trying to create the lowest bar theologically that we can so that we all can, can believe in Jesus together, all have unity together. That's not what we're after. We're not, a, we're not after compromising Scripture to be at unity. That would be a false sense of unity. But what we are after is finding unity around core beliefs, around the essentials, if you will. So Paul encourages the Ephesians to maintain this sort of unity in Ephesians 4. This is what he says. Ephesians 4, um, 1-6. through 6. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So it's, it's key there when he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He is counting himself a slave to the Lord, a, a servant to the Lord, someone who is bound to the Lord. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which would be what? to be bound also to the Lord. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He goes on to say this, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. all right, those are huge things. We don't have time to dissect all that he's talking about there, but what he's laying out are essentials for unity. Ways that we can find it possible to be humble and gentle and bear with one another in love around these core thoughts, around these core beliefs, as even in their day, there were outside truths trying to infiltrate Christianity. And so, what we see, and what I think believers have experienced for all of church history, is that our fallen nature encourages us to build our identity based on what distinguishes us. You, you need look no further than the world to see that we are building our identity based on whatever we think distinguishes us. Well, that's infiltrating the church. We build our identity based on what distinguishes us, even from other believers, but Jesus is exposing the self-centeredness of such a mindset. He's exposing that. And what he's laying out is this, is that our union with Christ, when we are united to Christ by His death and resurrection through faith, it brings a unity in Christ that transcends all secondary beliefs, all secondary disagreements, if you will. Notice I said secondary. Again, we don't want to compromise Scripture. We don't compromise the, the truths of Scripture. 
There are essential beliefs. All right, we, we have some listed on our website. We've got 10 that we line up around. We're, we're saying these are the core beliefs of our church. These are the essential things in which we will find unity. We have a, a phrase that, that I think uh, St. Augustine actually wrote. Uh, but in the essential beliefs, we have unity. In the non-essential beliefs, we have uh, liberty. And in all beliefs, we show charity. All right, this is what we say in our membership classes when we're talking through some of these things. But there are essential beliefs. He talks about the word which you've received from me, the word which I've given them from you. There are core things which we ought to hold fast. Things like the inerrancy of Scripture. That, that Scripture is, is sufficient for us. That it is without error. Things like the virgin birth of Christ are essential to our beliefs. The Trinity, that God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, working together as a unified one. It's impossible to explain. There are no good analogies for it. It is what it is. It's mysterious. But it's a core belief that we have. We believe that Christ will return again, according to the Scriptures. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and so on and so forth. Things like that there's room to differ on things like worship styles right whether or not we're going to sing just straight hymns or we're going to use a guitar or we're going to use drums or or not there's room to differ on that there's room to differ on whether or not you should raise your hands in church or, or whether or not someone else feels comfortable to do the same there's room to differ on favorite bible translations you know maybe somebody likes the niv and someone likes the esv and other people like the nlt and there's room to differ on end times views. There's a ton of those. We do want to agree that Christ is coming back. We may not always agree on what that will look like. It doesn't really matter in the end. <laughs> there are plenty of other disagreements we could dive into this morning, but that's not really the point of what we're wanting to talk about today. What we're after is, as one commentator said, real unity in Christians is a supernatural work. And it points to a supernatural explanation. The only explanation for unity in the church is Christ in us. That same Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, in you. And I believe the supernatural explanation of Christ in us strengthens us in unity by causing us to consider one another as greater than ourselves, according to Philippians chapter 2. In Ephesians 4, we read, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Jesus illustrates this in John chapter 13 when He kneels down and washes the disciples' feet. The lesson He teaches them is that we are to go low in humble service toward one another. We are strengthened in unity, and we become witnesses to the world as we learn to be humble like Christ. I once heard something similar to this. And, and, until the watching world starts saying about us because of how unselfishly we strive for unity, those crazy Christians, is there no end to the links they'll go to maintain unity? Until we grip the world's attention in that way, we have no voice and we should not have a voice.
we must strive for unity. Now, here's what I love about New Life Community Church. I don't see a lot of backbiting. I don't see a lot of people tearing one another down. I don't see a lot of people even tearing other churches down. I see you guys being focused on the mission in front of you, which is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So I commend you in that. Let's keep it up, but let's always beware that Satan wants nothing more than to cause disunity among us. He's after destroying that unity that's here. Let's be aware of that. Let's be on guard of that. Let's be on guard of our own sinfulness, not the sinfulness in someone else, but our own proneness to to wonder, our own proneness to uh, enjoy gossip or slander or uh, to entertain such things. Amen? Surely you can join me in that endeavor. All right? So Christ prays that the church would be a witness to the world as He strengthens us in unity. He also prays that he, we would be a witness to the world as He shines through us in glory. In verse 22, it says this, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Now glory commonly refers to the manifestation of, of God's character. We see, uh, as we've mentioned so much already before, Jesus was the perfect imprint of God. He's the exact representation of His glory that He made known to us. John 1 says, the very glory of God the Father as only God the Son could do, that it was full of grace and truth. All right, so the glory that Jesus gives us is this manifestation of God's character. Jesus has made the glory of God known, who He is. And He did it personally to His first disciples, as we see here, by dwelling with them, living among them, teaching them. And then He does it through them, to those who believe the Word which they taught, so that we may all be one as God is one. Well, maybe you say, well, I never heard the word that the disciples taught. So I'm not speaking as if you heard them preach one time, because that would be impossible. I'm speaking as though you've read the word of God, and this is their teaching, which came from the Father to the Son to the disciples through the Holy Spirit, and is the inspired word of God. Amen? This is how God speaks to us today. This is how God changes our lives today. This is how God causes us to reflect the glory of His Son today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. So this is one of the apostles, not the original, but brought in to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He says, With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So he says, I'm not here to proclaim how awesome I am. I'm here to proclaim how great Jesus Christ is. That's the life-giving message of the Bible. John Piper comments on this, and he says, the proclaimer, now he's talking now because we get to do this also as, as Christians. The proclaimer, you and I, embodies the beauty of the proclaimed Jesus by freely laying down our God-given freedom and taking up the role of slave by putting ourselves at the the disposal of others for their good. So so how are we to embody the beauty, this, this beauty that we see, this glory of Christ? How do we embody that as people? Well, it's by beholding 
If you'll remember 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18, we read this um, a couple of weeks ago. It says this, but when the one t- when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What Paul is writing there is that as we turn to the Lord, the veil which kept us from seeing the Lord has been removed, and we now, all with an unveiled face, are beholding the very glory of Christ. We're looking at Christ and seeing Him for who He is. And he says that as we look into the beauty of Christ, we are then transformed by it into the likeness of Christ or into the same nature of Christ. One way to think about this would be to think about a mirror. We become mirrors of His glory for others to see and believe in Christ as they look at our lives and see by our word and by our actions that we are projecting the glory of Jesus in all that we say and do. That whatever we say or do, whatever we're doing, we do it all to the glory of God. John Piper goes on to explain this. He says, the glory of Christ is proclaimed and embodied in human language and life. And the glory of Christ is then illuminated by God as He enables hearts to see Him. So God uses His people to reveal His glory to others as we behold the glory of His Son. Therefore, again, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This means husbands shine forth in sacrificial love the glory of Christ toward your wife. Wives, shine forth Christ's glory in being a helper to your husband. Single people, unmarrieds, shine forth Christ's glory in seeking to live for Him rather than the opinion of others. Children, shine forth Christ's glory in joyful obedience to your parents. Employees, shine forth Christ's glory by doing your work as unto Christ Himself. Unbelievers, you too can shine forth Christ's glory by surrendering your life to Him today. Believers, all of us, shine forth Christ's glory by beholding Him Daily, so that whatever you say and do, you would do it all for the glory of God. A third thing we see that Jesus prays for as he thinks about the witness of the church in the world is that he's going to fill us with his love. Verse 23, we read I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So, Jesus prays that that He would be in us as the Father is in Him, that we may become perfectly one, as we saw earlier, in unity, 
so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son, as the world then observes the love of the Father toward believers, even in the same way He loves the Son. That is unbelievably fascinating. Miss Barbara stopped me on my way in today and she pointed out this text to me. And she said, it's one of the only texts that, that's brought her to her knees. Just seeing that the Father loves believers the same way. The same way. Not in some lesser way, but the same way He loves the Son. This certainly makes it far more believable when Jesus proclaims in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave the, His only begotten Son. That's me, by the way, folks. He gave me to die for you so that none of you would have to perish, so that all of you could have eternal life. Jesus is telling us here in His prayer that the Father loves us in the same way He loves Him. And He wants us to know that. He, he's going to show us that by submitting Himself to death on a cross for us so that we would know the love of the Father in that way. I have a lot more to say, but I hope that rests on your heart. I, I don't know how to say it. I, the words fell me how to say that in a way that might jock, rock you in, into a, a deeper love for the Lord. But, but let me continue and maybe we'll get close. How might the world observe such a love? If the world's going to observe a love in us, how might that happened. Well, John says in his first epistle, his first letter to the churches, he says, we love because he first loved us. So in other words, believers love the Lord because he first loved them. The Lord first loved them. The Lord initiates the love. A, a believer is someone who comes to know the love of God because God saves him or her from their sin. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, but God, after it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the ways of Satan, <laughs> of whom we all once were, he says, he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, while we were still sinners, Christ dies, right? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he makes us alive together with Christ. No longer dead, but now alive. So once your heart has been transformed by the love of God to be able to then love God, we love because He first loved us, we're able to love because He first loves us, you will begin to love others then as He does. You, you have to. <laughs> John says that if we say we love God but do not love one another, talking about the love among believers, he says, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. So John 13, 34 through 35, after Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, he says this, he says, a new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another. Well, that wasn't the new commandment. Here's the part that's new. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, Jesus says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love for one another, love among saints, love among brothers and sisters in Christ is the essential mark of the Christian. We can say we believe. The demons do that and shudder. It means nothing. We can say we love the Lord, but John says if we say we love the Lord and don't love one another, we're lying. The mark then of a Christian is to love your neighbor. It's to love one another. It's to love the person sitting next to you who calls themselves a Christian, who is a believer. There is to be among believers a mark, a special outgoing love from our heart toward our fellow brothers and sisters. And Jesus says, the world will look upon that love and know that we are His followers. The, the whole point, Ray Ortland said this, he said the whole point of love for one another is that we are no longer limited to our mere likes and dislikes, but we are free to love at a level we never dreamed possible because the love of Jesus has refined us, redefined us forever. Why? Well, because the Christian, because Christian love, rather, is unlike any other love in the world. It's the kind of love that bears all things. It's the kind of love that believes all things. It's the kind of love that hopes all things. It's the kind of love that endures all things. It's a Romans 5 eight kind of love, the kind of love that caused Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. It's the kind of love then that as you understand the way God has loved you while you were still a sinner, that you begin to love others before you would declare them lovely or not. In fact, you take away the need from your own self-centered living to declare whether or not someone is lovely and you begin to love them for who they are. As fellow creatures, as fellow creations of God, made in His image and likeness, just like you are. That's an otherworldly kind of love. Christian love provides gospel truths. It's going to proclaim truth. That's, that's, it's unloving to not proclaim truth. I don't feel like we have to talk a ton about that. Christian love is going to tell people about the love of God. Christian love is going to provide a spot for someone to feel safe being who they are. Confessing, this is my struggle. This is what I'm dealing with in my life. This is where I need the Lord's help. And then Christian love is also going to give that person time to be transformed into the likeness of Christ without saying it must look like this by this amount of time. One of the ways you maybe have heard this is it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. It's not my favorite saying, but it's a good way of saying 
what Christian love ought to look like for people. It's okay to come into the assembly, not okay. It's okay to step into the presence of another believer, not okay, and to confess need for Christ to intervene in your life. I think the only way the world will begin to do that is when they look on the assembly of believers and they see the love of Christ abounding. If they don't, Jesus says they have right, they have the right to, to not enter in, to judge that we are not what we say we are, and to say, you know what, I'll spend my Sundays, my Wednesday nights, I'll spend them some other way. Lord, help us if they look on us and do that. I think that in a world that is demanding right now its own independence, it's demanding its own freedom from truth, it's demanding freedom from the, 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 the limits of one another. That's the world we live in, right? Be who you want to be. Be whatever you feel like being today. I think in that kind of world that this kind of love among Christians where there's the gospel, there's safety, there's time, man, I think that's going to be a fascinating, life-giving light to a hopeless soul. They're going to come running. But, but guys, it, it is in our court to live this way according to what we are seeing in Jesus according to the grace that we observe in Him and what He's poured out on us, His own love for us. It's now the ball's in our court to begin to love others, to crucify in ourselves parts of us that don't want to love others. Now look at me. I know that's hard. I know that's insanely hard difficult because people cause great amount of hurt to people all of the time so i don't sit up here in some utopia with this euphoric sense of man we just got to be loving let's smile and love people all the time I even that's not real love i think the gospel frees you to be the most the, the, the most loving form of humanity that you can be. You're not looking for the applause of others. You're not looking for the praise of others. You're not looking to, uh, to fit in with certain crowds. or you're not, you're not living your life in that way. But in the same vein, when people hurt you, you're able over time to realize that that's just a small amount of hurt compared to the rebellion that I've shown against God, yet He loves anyway. Now, that does not mean that relationships become perfect again. That does not mean that there should not be protections. That does not mean that someone should just be welcomed back into your life. That's a case-by-case -case scenario. But what it does mean for us is we want to beg the Lord to show us how to forgive, to show us how to move forward, to ask for His wisdom, to not be so wrapped up in my pain and my hurt that I'm forgetting 
to live for the Lord's glory. Now, there is a ton, a ton to flesh out in that. So don't hear that as absolute statements, please. There are so many nuances, so many different conversations that can happen around that thought. So, ask someone in your home group. Ask your home group leader. Come knock on my door. Seek help in that. Let's figure it out together. Amen? It can be done. It can. Nothing is impossible for our God. If anyone can restore a hurt, a broken relationship, a pain, a struggle, an addiction, anyone can restore or redeem any of that stuff, reconcile relationship, all of it, it's God. It's God. The question will be, do I trust Him enough to do that? And I get that's difficult. I do. I get that's difficult. As someone who's been hurt, over and over by people who are close to me, I understand that's very painful. But it's possible. I stand here as someone saying, it's possible. God will teach. God will show you how to forgive. He'll show you how to love again. Anyway, I don't feel like I'm rambling there, (laughs) but I feel like I went too long on that point. So let's move forward. Verse 24. Christ is going to preserve us with His hope. Father, I desire that they also, whom You have given Me, may be with Me where I am to see My glory that You have given Me because You loved Me before the foundation of the world. Remember, Jesus said in John 16, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. It's a guarantee that in this world there will be trouble. But it's also a guarantee that Christ preserves you with His prayers for your perseverance by giving you hope. (laughs) You will, believers, you will see Jesus Christ one day. This world will fade away soon. You'll, You'll be in the presence of Christ forever. To be with Christ is the supreme yearning of the Christian heart. We long for the day that we get to enjoy the presence of Jesus forevermore. And rather than praying for temporal prosperity, Jesus prays for us to have strength and unity, to shine forth His glory, to be full of His love, to persevere in hope. If you remember John 14, right as... as Well, in the early stages of this upper room discourse, as it's called, Jesus says this, He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Rather than a troubled heart, Jesus wants us by His Word and His grace at work in our lives to press forward 
in hope of a heavenly homeland, knowing that this light momentary affliction, as Paul calls it, is building for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When, when you're able to live this way, when you're able to look forward to the hope of heaven, you're, you're free then from worldly cares, from worldly concerns, and by your word and deed, you, you begin to live as a witness to the eternal goodness of God and, and the world, which is watching you, living then as witnesses to the temporal goodness of worldly things, they will begin to take notice they'll begin to seek to understand what is up with that gal? What is up with that dude? Why always so happy? Why always so hopeful, so joyous? I know his life's not perfect. He talks about it, yet presses forward. I know that she's depressed and down, but she talks about the Lord as if He's her best friend. People take notice. They'll see your otherworldly hope and the promise here is that they too, some, will turn to Christ in faith also. He'll save them. So, what, what does this look like then for us? I, I think one thing is that we ought to now see that the Great Commission isn't your job to do necessarily. It's God's promise to fulfill through you. He, he is strengthening you in unity. He is shining through you in His glory. He is filling you with His love. He is persevering you with His hope. Now the question becomes, will you go on trusting in yourself? Will you go on avoiding the work altogether? Or will you trust God and walk faithfully with Him in this story of redemption that He's called you into? Will you allow Him to use you for the spread of the Gospel through the lives of those around you or into the lives of those around you? In verses 25-26, through 26, Jesus just kind of sums up this whole prayer. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You. And these know that You have sent Me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You, you see what Jesus is saying, right? He is saying, I am going to accomplish the purposes which you have given me in this world, Father. I am going to continue to make known your name. I am going to continue to show you show them who you are so that your love may be in them as it is in me and I in them also. Guys, He is with us always, even to the end of the age. There is nothing, nothing, nothing we should fear. Amen? I hope you're encouraged this morning. Would you stand to your feet?